to the Sign Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host. We have a reader's guide to the Bible. Yes, a reader's guide to the Bible. We're going to find out what that means. We have a special guest, Dr. John Goldengay. He joins us. He is David Allen Hubbard Professor of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. Very well lauded in the scholarship world. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So, I have to ask candidly, what percentage of the church, difficult first question, what percentage of the church actually reads the whole Bible? <laughs> well, how would I know? I mean, I'm sure that there are people who've got the statistics for that. Um, <laughs> but I bet the whole Bible, I bet it's microscopic. I would think I would think so. I mean, you know, that's why I'm sure that that's how you wrote this. So the reason why a reader's guide to the Bible. Tell us why you wrote the book. Um, well, I mean, I uh, am passionately concerned that people should read the Bible. Um, and I know there are all sorts of reasons why uh, it's um, uh, why people don't. Um, and uh, and some of them are to do with the pace of life and um, uh, and whatnot. Um, but some of them are to do maybe with needing something that will introduce them. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that interested me in writing the book the, the way that I wrote it is that um, the people often think about the the Bible as essentially divided between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's true. That's obviously true. Um, but it's in a way not the most interesting way to divide up the Bible. Uh, and I think it's at least as interesting and illuminating to think of it in terms of, as the book does, the story of God and his people and the word of God to his people uh, and then Israel's response to God. And that gives I, I thought that that might give people who um, were a bit tired with regard to what the Bible was about a different way of looking at it. Well, let's look at that for the church. Uh, you know, in church, we have the Old Testament, the New Testament. Some churches pride themselves on being in New Testament churches. And they, you know, I know you cringe at that, but you teach the Old Testament. <laughs> but, uh, so in England, we have, there is a denomination called the New Testament Church of God. I believe it. Which is the equivalent of one of the Church of God uh, um, denominations in the U.S. Yeah. And I used to say, uh, I, I belong to the Old Testament Church of God. Yeah, amen. I was going to say, we call that in America here the South, the the New Testament. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. So, I mean, but it exists, and, and the dangers or the implications of that, I mean, could that be cultural? I mean, do, sometimes I don't know how we forget that Jesus was Jewish, and this is a Jewish book, is it not? Sorry, this is a... Oh, a, Jew, a Jewish book, yeah. I mean, in other words, do we forget, does the church forget that Jesus uh, is Jewish or was Jewish? Yeah. He's still right. Jewish. Right, yeah. Why are you called Messiah Broadcasting or whatever it is you're called? Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I was going to say, well, one, I'm I'm a Jew who has received Christ. Right, praise God. Okay. Yeah, praise yeah. God as my Lord and Savior. So, But the other thing right. is, though, is that, you know, we're all part of the community, you know, Messiah community of Messiah. Right. We all belong to the same, uh, same family. Right. But so is that a dividing when we may make the mistake of not seeing it? in its entirety as one book, but just the Old and the New Testament, and then people right. get to choose, I guess. One of my um, mentors uh, years and years ago uh, used to say that if you want to understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the first thing to do is to tear out the blank page in between Malachi and Malachi. <laughs> and I like that. I do too. 
I like that a lot. So now, speaking of which, and you know, you steer us in the right direction according to you know how you wrote your book and everything. But um, do we make the mistake of not having ordered the way that it originally was, or or does that not matter? Not having it ordered the way. You, you, well, you were you mentioning with Malachi or then beginning with Matthew? I mean, as far as a person's introduction, once again, a reader's guide to the Bible, does that matter whether or not it's uh, in the... I mean, do we have the order right, or do, how important is the order? And in your book, uh, how important is it for people to know uh, chronologically how the Bible is laid out? Well, I think um, it, it certainly helps you to know something about the chronology, but all sorts of different orders um, uh, produce interesting, make you make you realise interesting things. The, the 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 order that we're used to most, as at least as Gentile Christians, is the one that ends the Old Testament with Malachi, and that does that that, that ends the Old Testament with the prophets, mm-hmm. and that does lead neatly into the New Testament insofar as Jesus is the fulfilment uh, of a lot of what the prophets talk about. But the uh, traditional Jewish order is the Torah, the prophets, and then the writings, uh, so that you get books like Psalms and Job and whatnot towards the end uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures instead of in the middle. And that's illuminating as well. You know, you, uh, you, you, you end up making interesting links between uh, Jewish faith and Christian faith with that different order as well. So I don't know that it matters a great deal um, which order, because uh, you will gain some things and miss some things, whichever order you work with. Well, let's talk about that beginning believer. And um, again, when people get into the Bible brand new, where do the where does it get interesting as far as where they fall out sometimes? I mean, is it true that uh, you could start saying, I really want to read the Bible, and then all of a sudden you fall out at Leviticus? Or right, what okay. <laughs> What are some of the things that lead us through, you know, some of the common either misconceptions or misperceptions, whatever you want to call it, uh, when people first approach the Bible? Well, I think... One comment, one as it were tip, uh, I think, is not to try to start at the beginning, not not just to do that, but to do something like start in about three or four places, so that you might start in Genesis, but also start in Psalms, and also start in Matthew, and read one chapter a day of each, and um, maybe in God's grace you'll find that there's something that makes sense and is really helpful in at least one of those chapters uh, each each day. And if you have a dry time when you're in Leviticus, well, it may not be too bad because at the same time you'll be reading Jeremiah and you'll be reading Romans. (laughs) So the others will keep you going. Uh, Conversely, sometimes you'll be having a hard time with the New Testament, but the Old Testament may be what keeps you going. Now, am I being unfair when it comes to some of the pastors? that Are they they keeping people honest, really, about what these books are all about? Because you do a nice job, a very nice job, in fact, as far as getting us to understand, really, what we're about to talk about. And, you know, I think that, you know, the scriptures, for many people, it's a mystery. Uh, but God wants to speak plainly to us, of course. And so uh, have the pastors some uh, unfairly not uh, done people uh, much of a service as far as not really understanding book by book what it actually means? I mean, just kind of like the roadmap about where we're about to enter into. Right, yeah. I, I think that one of the problems is something like... Um, I think in, I think a, to a century or three ago, there was a lot more reading of Scripture in worship uh, I agree. than there often is now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and often now, um, all, I mean, par- paradoxically and sadly in a way, 
um, many thriving evangelical uh, churches uh, will hardly read scripture for its own sake. You'll have, uh, you know, some terrific worship music and so on. (laughs) And then the pastor will start a sermon and will read a verse or three and then will talk uh, about that. But it means that the scriptures themselves don't have anything like the prominence in worship Mm -hmm. that once had. Uh, all right, so so I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy after all, because this I, I, is what I I, I feel when I'm in the in the <laughs> when I go to church. Um, right, and and one of the but one of the results of that of that change is that it used to be the case that going to worship involved you in soaking in some soaking in the scriptures, and that doesn't happen in the same way now. So I mean, what's the reason for that? I mean, and again. Uh, your book, A Reader's Guide to the Bible, wouldn't it be helpful if we all knew and were better educated about what book, you know, what it means and, and how it goes in, into each book and things like that? I, mean, yeah, I would think sure, that people... Yeah, yeah. My, my wife would like to, me to say to you, everybody should go and buy this book. Everybody buy it, please. It's called A Reader's <laughs> Guide to the Bible. I know I said that a lot, but you have to get it. It's, it's by Dr. John Goldengay. Okay, who is the uh, the professor uh, Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary? Okay, nice plug. Now back to you. Well, but one of the and one of the th- the points about the way the book works by, for instance, spending the first um, nearly half of it on the story of God and His people is that if people read that and help that to to be their way into um, understanding the books themselves, that will help them with that thing about chronology uh, that you were talking about just now. Yes, and you are a scholar, no doubt. I mean, I was looking at, you just go to Wikipedia, okay? <laughs> I know there are other publications, but if you go to Wikipedia, you look up Dr. John Goldinger, and, and my eyes began to hurt as I'm scrolling down the LED screen, all the, the publications. But I have to ask, though, in writing this, the simplicity of it, as far as, you know, Reader's Guide to the Bible, uh, what did you learn from writing this book that perhaps you didn't learn from all the other scholarship you've done? <laughs> I don't remember what I learned, but but the but the the thing that I was well, I suppose I le- I spelled out for myself that hunch that I was talking about, which is that if we think about the story, the, the Bible as a whole, as these three things, as the story of God and His people, and as God's word to His people, uh, and as um, Israel's response to God, Israel talking to God then that opens up windows on the different kinds of books and the different kinds of texts. Uh, And so um, looking at it in that framework helped me to... um, And and, and I suppose part of it is that if you're trying to write a a short and easy-to-read book like that, then you've got to understand properly. Um, When people say complicated things or write complicated things theologically... Um, it probably means that if the, if they write complicated, then it probably means they haven't really understood. If you're going to write <laughs> simple, it's it's it actually means that really? you need really to have understood it. So if I'm to write in a way that people can understand, then I I need to make sure that I've got it myself. Yeah. Then we, who said that? I think it was J. Vernon McGee that he you got to put the cookies close to the cookie jar or something like that. He said he said something <laughs> like that where <laughs> you know to make it more. Uh, he said it with that uh, that famous you know Georgian accent. I think he had. But um, so now I'm going to throw some things at you, and you let me know either the misconceptions that people may have about the book, or maybe things that you'd like to expound upon that you know you wrote about. Okay. So first. Let's talk about from Genesis to Numbers. What, in a nutshell, I guess, it's like a nutshell interview. 
what would you like people to know about uh, as far as remedially speaking from Genesis to Numbers? Well, the, let, let, let me, first of all, that's... Unfair question? <laughs> no, it's not, a, no, an unfair, oh. not an unfair question at all, but I need to come to it gradually. Okay. If you are to understand the Jesus story, then you've got to understand the Israel story. Okay. The beginning of Matthew's gospel makes that very clear with that long list of names. Again, a, bit, a, a passage that we might get stuck in. But Matthew assumes that you'll only understand Jesus if you understand where he came from. Uh, and so you need to understand Israel. But if you're going to understand Israel, you need to understand where Israel came from. And what Genesis to Numbers is, uh, is, the, is the story of Israel in a way before it became Israel, before it got into the promised land. Uh, and so the thing to get from Genesis to Numbers is how God made these promises to his people and how he got them out of Egypt and to, to the edge of the promised land. And behind even that, how God created the world in the first place and why he needed to latch on to a particular people in order to bring about the world's redemption. So the big picture in Genesis to Numbers is here's how God created the world. Here's how it went wrong. Here's how God took hold of Abraham and Cohen and made promises to them. And here's how he began to fulfill those promises to them and got them to the edge of the promised land. Now, are you excited? In a minute, I'll tell you the story about how they got into the promised land. I am excited. And I was going to say that, you know, I mean, this makes sense, Dr. Goldnagay. The Bible that actually could make sense. sense. Aim that high. I mean, <laughs> but you see, it's I think people are being shortchanged. Now, I think people would be interested if they actually knew, you know, the whole landscape of, of Scripture. So now... If I if I do the same thing with Ruth, Esther, Jonah, and Daniel in your book, short stories, right. how how are they connected? They're not connected to each other, except insofar as they're all short stories. Um, and so, what the, the neat thing about them uh, is that is that they talk about ordinary people in ordinary lives, not in much of a context um, of the big story at all. Um, but so. I mean, that, they make a good st- a good place to start reading in a way because you don't need much of the chronology. You don't need the big picture because you can read R- Ruth and Esther and Jonah uh, stand on their own uh, as stories. And you can just read them on their own and, and see particularly, well, in different ways with all of them, with Ruth most of all, maybe. Here's, um, here's, here are two women living with terrible tragedy in their life. Uh, and how uh, they help each other, and how God helps them to get out of that tragedy. That's a very exciting story. Now, I'm not trying to be confrontational or anything like that, okay? But, you know, Christmas is coming up, and you're going to hear a lot of songs in the in the church about the King of Israel, the King of yeah. Israel, you know? And so, yeah. in many denominations, okay, they talk about, well, all those promises uh, for the Jewish people, now they're going to the church. And uh, But then, but front and center, though, in every single church, whether Catholic church or Protestant church, you hear these songs that talk about the king of, of the Jews. Do you feel that that kind of sobers people up just a little bit in light of, of the Bible as a whole, or maybe seeing the whole big picture that perhaps we don't see every day in the church? You mean that the um, that if we're not careful, that what you're talking about is... It's as if the church has replaced the Jewish people with yes. God's purpose. Yes. And the very fact that we sing those songs indicates that, well, we're contradicting ourselves by singing the songs. Exactly. Really. Yes. Right. Sure. Yeah. 
So, I mean, I find it interesting that does, you know, takes place this, this time of year where I think God emphatically knows that he hasn't forgotten his people. But, uh, all right. So in lieu of that question, how important is it for the church to know that this is a Jewish book? I mean, you talk about that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's very important because, um, the fact that it's not a Western book and not a book written in, centuries BC and, and the immediate centuries just after AD. That's really important because we have to accept that if we're to understand it, uh, we, we need to get into understanding somebody else's culture. Uh, and, and we can only actually get the message if we get into an understanding of the social context and the culture and so on. We'll, we'll get a lot of it without that. But if we're actually not to get stuck in Leviticus in that way you were talking about a little while ago, then we have to understand uh, what what are the what what is the meaning of the, um, the the emphasis on cleanness and the practice of sacrifice and so on, which people have, people still are involved in in the 21st century, but not in the United States. <laughs> um, and so, uh, getting some understanding of other cultures helps us into an understanding of the scriptures themselves. Uh, and that then helps us to understand what God was saying to his people then, which has these implications for what God is saying to his people now. Well, Dr. Golden Gate, you are the tour guide to all of us here as far as the Bible. Bible, we're holding your hand, a reader's guide guide to the Bible, if I could barely talk here. And so so I want you to do is is take us by the hand. I'll just be the moderator, okay? And and systematically in, in the time frame that we have, lead us through the scriptures as far as what you want to get accomplished in writing this book well can i can i tell you again tell you to you again in terms of the the shape of the book yes that is the, the, it begins uh, as the story of god and his people um because uh, and it thereby in effect takes you through what matthew chapter 1 verses 1 to 17 take you through so it's it's here's how god created the world here's how things went wrong Here's how God took hold of Abraham and co and made promises to them. Here's how he then got them out of uh, Egypt when they got into bondage there. Here's how he took them through um, the uh, promised land, took them towards the promised land. We'll, we'll, edit, we'll edit that out. Don't worry about that. That's okay. Um, Don't, do you have to get that? I mean, I can, we'll, we'll edit. I'm just trying to stop it. Um, it's okay. Uh, here's... <laughs> <laughs> Where do we keep it in? I mean, this is funny. This is a sign. People might, you know. Um, here's how he got them to the edge of the promised land. Here's how he took them into the promised land. Here's how they got in a mess when they were in the promised land and how God took them into exile. Here's how God rescued them from exile and brought them back. But here's how life there, life after he brought them back from exile, wasn't as terrific as you thought, might have thought that, they, that it would be. So here's how God uh, kept encouraging them about the fact that he was going to redeem them and restore them in due course. And then you're on the edge of the New Testament. Hmm. So here's how God came to, to, to bring about that restoration and that redemption in Jesus. So that's the story. That's the whole right there. That's the whole story. That, that, yeah, well, the whole. No, I know. It, no, it's, it's the whole story, except that it goes on into talking about the early church and then beyond uh, that to the time when Jesus is going to come again and when God is going to create the new Jerusalem. So that the, the big story takes you right from creation at the very beginning uh, to the creation of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the earth at the end. 
So it's a much bigger story than um, than the one I implied just now. You see, that's get, story. getting back to <laughs> that's the story. There used to be yep. a commercial in Long Island called "That's the Story, Jerry." It was about a plumber or something like that. But anyway, <laughs> long, long. That's a long story. But so, um, you know, I mean, getting back to what you you talked about in light of all this, we. And then, can I just say, yes, the 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 the, uh, the prophets and Paul and so on all fit into that story at one point or another. So the story gives you the framework for, for fitting them in and understanding why they're saying what they're saying. So whose story is it? Is it our story or is it God's story? Now, I say that kiddingly because a lot of times in the church we forget that it's it's God's story. And and, and yeah. many times we make it that's about right. us. And maybe that's maybe right. that's why there's... Absolutely right. Yeah, that's probably uh, why there's an so issue here. Again, part of the point about the title, the framework for the uh, parts of the book, it's the story of God and his people. Mm-hmm. And, and then the word of God to his people, and then only in the last bit do we come to Israel's response to God. It comes to us at the end, because the Psalms are there and so on, and that's our speaking to God. But our speaking to God uh, comes in after you know about what God has done for us, and after you've listened to what God has got to say to us. Sorry, people, it's not about you. It's about God. <laughs> you know, you'll find it in a reader's guide to the Bible with Dr. You know, John Golden Gay, our author and our special guest. And so now you also mentioned about extra biblical books like the Apocrypha. And can you talk about that? Is it important that we know anything about them? Um, is it important? Well, so it's useful sometimes in that some, sometimes the New Testament is presupposing other Jewish religious writings than the Old Testament. It doesn't. I don't mean it regards them as the Bible, but but people in their day um, know them, and so sometimes uh, the Old Test- the, the New Testament is presupposing them. There's a famous reference to the Book of Enoch uh, in in the New Testament. So it sometimes helps you to to know some of those. Um, but I think we're, we're in enough trouble with that with people not knowing the uh, main Bible parts. So let's just. Let people just stick that foot with that That's for a while. True. And when they've really got a grip of the Bible in the kind of classic sense, then they can broaden out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm listening to you talk, okay? And uh, a nice accent, of course, but uh, I'm... Yeah, sometimes people think I talk sense because I've got a vision. <laughs> you learned a couple of things, didn't you, all this time? But, you know, I'm, I'm reading your book and I'm, I'm thinking much like you're like a, almost like a music teacher or one of those, uh, you know, professors at Juilliard, if you will, uh, where... You know, they teach us really if you break down what acting is or the interaction or, or song and things like that and, and how the music flows uh, into each other. I think that um, there's a beauty maybe lost in learning the scriptures. And what beauty would that be? Uh, well, uh, can I come back to that question in a minute? But, uh, but what you made me think about something else, which is um, I think it's there can easily be a collusion between pastors and people, Mm. and between professors and students, which assumes that the pastors and the professors are the people who read the Bible, and they kind of read the Bible on behalf of the congregation. Mm. Uh, Whereas I see my job both as a professor and as a pastor to be like that Juilliard person you were talking about, who is seeking to help people to read the Bible for themselves. And one of the things that, that kind of horrifies me and amuses me as a professor is the extent to which when, when, when I send students away to go and read, say, Genesis, they then come back and they say, it doesn't say what my pastor told me it says. What would that be? 
Uh, oh, I can't think of particular examples now, but um, uh, but 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 they've been uh, that often. Well, well, maybe one of the classic things would be the the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. The God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Hmm. Actually, the God of the Old Testament is a God of grace, but also one is prepared to act in judgment. And the God of the, of the New Testament is also a God of grace, but also one is prepared to act in judgment. And those kind of um, big picture oversimplifications often um, don't help people actually in the end to understand the Bible. Well, I know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. <laughs> I was right. going to say that, but these and pastors, the they're going to have... the Old Testament and the New Testament say that. That's right, but they're going to have to answer. I keep thinking about that. I mean, we got the potluck covered and all these other activities, but I mean, as far as all the study that even students that you may have, okay, and then they become a pastor, I mean, really, they they have to answer to God to, to give out the word. I mean, that's what the Lord wants. So, they have to um, answer to God, and you and I do. That's scary, isn't it? It, it really oh. is. It, because the numbers don't matter in the church. And if you're a pastor who's listening and feel convicted by that, I mean, that's a good thing, because in the end, it's it's really the power of God's word and understanding it and making it all about not the church or, or churchianity, but about uh, uh, Jesus and, uh, and his word. So... Um, very important. What, what would you like? Uh, what's the misconception about your book? I mean, people may think, okay, a reader's guide. I, I, I know that kind of thing. I, I've seen those type of things. How's your book different? Uh, I don't know because I haven't read all the others. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> Good answer, Doctor Golden Gay. But I mean, okay, yeah, so anybody ha- else does it the way I do it in terms of God's story uh, and the Word of God to His people and um, His people's response. As far as I know, nobody else has kind of organized it that way and thereby attempted to, attempted to enable people to read it in light of looking at the scriptures as a whole that way. And in a way that thereby also breaks down the, the, um, the, an artificial distinction mm-hmm. between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, your publisher is IVP, is that correct? Yep. So marketing wise, can we have like a board game? Along with this, like as a learning tool, a reader's guide to the Bible, like a board game and different things like that. I mean, I think you can have fun with this. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. As far as people learning the scriptures. And so now, you know, the Bible very well, but what more do you have to learn about the Bible, do you think? Well, I'm not sure it's so much learning more as um, every time there's a fantastic richness about it. And uh, the, the depths of it, are, are we, we never plumb the depths of it. We never learn all there is. Um, so it's not so much that you learn new facts as you interact with it in a new way and you see in a new way some respect in which it's uh, going to speak to you in your situation, which is different from what it was 10 years ago or something. Um, so it's a question of, um, well, here's a kind of example, maybe. Um, the dean of my uh, school uh, is has, has been quite ill, uh, and uh, and yesterday, uh, sorry, here's a confession. I'm an Episcopalian, uh, but one of the upsides to that is that uh, we have an, we have a way of reading the Bible that gives us that sets us passages to read for every day. So yesterday, my wife and I happened to where we were in Matthew's Gospel was the story of the Canaanite woman. Um, uh, falling at Jesus' feet to get him to heal her daughter. Um, and that made Kathleen and me plead with God like the to, to, to say uh-huh. to God, yeah. we are the Canaanite woman. Uh, we, want you to, we want you to heal Joel 
from uh, this illness that's been uh, troublesome to him. Uh, so I, I, I didn't exactly learn something new, but I but I learned uh, I picked up a new way of laying hold of that particular passage of scripture because it came together in my mind with something that was burdening us. Now, would God cringe when it comes to topical sermons in light of how intimate the Bible should be? I mean, a very personal book. Um, it, has topical sermons ruined things, or, or are we getting too down on, on some of the things that happen today? Um, I very occasionally will preach a topical sermon. Uh, I mean, I remember preaching one after the San Bernardino shootings. Um, but, but, I mean, it probably only myself in in on in exceptional circumstances because i think that if you're preaching on a passage there's much more chance that the agenda of the scriptures themselves will be what gets home particularly if you are following a lectionary where it's not me deciding what passage to preach on next sunday but that we have a system whereby over a period of three years um, from all over the scriptures things are put before the congregation and so that safeguards the congregation um, from my peculiarities a bit. Um, so I'm, I'm personally more or less always preach on a passage rather than on subject. Well, in the back of your book, you talk about times and settings. And so how important is that, the times and the settings of the Bible? Well, the, the times, um, uh, Jeremiah and, and Isaiah when, uh, in, in Jeremiah's day, there were people who were preaching the same message that Isaiah had preached. And Jeremiah is saying, that's not God's word to us now, um, because the situation was different. Uh, and a comment that's been made about that is uh, that a prophet is somebody who knows what time it is. Because God has to say to us different things at different times. So we need to be able to understand why the, the, why the writers of the scriptures are inspired by God to say what they say in their particular time if we're to see whether what they're saying in that time is what matches us or whether we might be doing what those guys in Jeremiah's day were doing in preaching Isaiah's message in a time when it didn't apply. What do you think the purpose of the Bible is? What a, what a loaded question. Obviously, it's to meet the person of Jesus Christ, but... Is there another purpose that you feel that is well, again, being missed in, in learning the Bible? Well, again, in, in a way that the, the structure of the book uh, is designed to answer that question, because the key thing about the Bible is that it tells us the story of what God has done for us uh, in the story of Israel, which comes to a climax in the story of Jesus. Um, it, it's very striking um, that the Bible is not structured, is not laid out as, as a systematic theology. Uh, and it's not laid out as a manual of ethics, and it's not laid out as a manual about spirituality. It's laid out as, as a story of what God has done, because the most important thing that we need is to know what God has done, because that's the thing whereby we ourselves um, got saved. Um, so the, um, the, the, the key thing about the Bible is that only the Bible can tell you that story. There are lots of good things you can learn um, from elsewhere outside the Bible. Isn't the Bible is not the only place to find truth, but the Bible is the only place where you can find the story of what God, of what God did for us in, in Israel, which came to a climax uh, in the story of Jesus. 
So when you meet some people might get an uproar about a comment like uh, <laughs> say that, you know, not the only place to find the truth. But you're saying that all truth is God's truth, right? That, I'm, I'm all. Uh I'm also saying that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there's all sorts of truth around, but but uh, uh, and and that's as you say, all truth is God's truth. There is what is technically technically called general revelation, as opposed to special revelation. Special revelation is what you've got in the Bible. It's the thing you can only learn there. General revelation is the things that God has written into um, into creation. Mm. Uh, the things that people uh, know because they're made in God's image. But but all that. The truth you'll find from outside the Bible is never going to tell you those key things about what God did in Israel and what God did in Jesus, which are crucial for our salvation. Well, when you have a book like this, A Reader's Guide to the Bible by Dr. John Goldinger, who joins us. And uh, do people ask you, uh, Dr. Goldinger, you know what, uh, uh, should I use the NIV version or the uh, New King James? Or do you get questions like that, especially after writing a book like this? Uh, I don't know that I've got quite good questions. I've got questions at least yet about in relation to that particular book, but I do get quite often asked about what's the best translation, and there's no answer to that question because uh, all translations have got um, advantages and disadvantages. It, translation is really, uh, in, in a way, translation is impossible because you're always involved in deciding on some kind of compromise between how closely you stick to the way that the text itself works and how uh, much you try to make it intelligible in the kind of phraseology and sentences that we use. And you always have to kind of um, come uh, make a decision about being uh, so, at some place on the line between those two. And a lot, in a lot of ways, the difference between translations is the difference, uh, the different point on that line that they settle on. Uh, and so there is a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said not for sticking with one translation, uh, but there are translations which are very kind of free, like the message. And then there are translations which are much more um, close to the text, like the King James Bible. And there are ones that are a bit more in between, like the NIV. Uh, they're all more or less accurate. They're just different, doing different kinds of jobs with regard to how far they're taking you to as close as possible to the, the original words and how far they're trying to make it intelligible for us. All right. So one last question. When it comes to the maps of the Bible. I mean, is it fair to say that maybe we should have like technicolor in the Bible? I mean, make it more oh, yeah. vivid oh, yeah, in, in sure. the but settings? Because we look at these maps in the scriptures, we all have them in our Bibles, and including myself, you know, they may be even glossy, but I never look at them. And uh, what can we do to get people more interested in, and what would the, the basis of that being, having a really good colorful um, activity in the Bible? Oh well, I think, but 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 nowadays there's loads and loads of maps um, on on online uh, that are very colourful and very helpful, and will sometimes focus on different parts of Israel or on the Middle East generally or whatever. Uh, and you can search and find particular places and and so on. So um, whereas uh, in the, in the old days one used to have big colour map books, now it's more natural to use the uh, uh, use the internet to get that. And if you can, as, and, and and if you can get a grasp of the geography and the uh, interrelationship of places, again, like knowing the historical and the social context, that will often help you to see the point about um, particular passages. I mean, I've been working. I just happen to be uh, working at the moment with Genesis, with the stories of Abraham and Isaac and whatnot. 
And when you look at the places where they are and what the difference distances are between those places and how far or how short they travel, then that helps you to get the hang of some aspects of the story. In all fairness, I just I have to ask one more question. My wife texted me. And she said, she said, I'm listening, and you, you did not ask my question to Dr. Golden Gang. So, okay, so I have to get this in just real quick because I, I promised you that, you know, um, what is the value of reading the four Gospels and comparing them? And do people do that? Uh, some people do that. Some people don't do it because they're scared because <laughs> you discover differences. Um, the a value of it is you'll see more clearly – Say so if you compare, if you put Matthew and Mark alongside each other, then you'll see ways in which Mark is different from Matthew and ways in which Matthew is different from Mark. And that will put you on the track again of the particular things that God was inspiring Matthew and Mark to do. So you'll 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 get the uh, particular message of each, uh, a new angle on the particular message of each when you um, put them alongside each other. I want everybody to get this book. It's called The Reader's Guide to the Bible by Dr. John Golden Gay. Approaching the Bible for the first time can be intimidating, as you say in the back of your book, and it can be intimidating for people who have been Christians for a very long period of time, and you break it down very eloquently and simply and wonderfully, and uh, we appreciate you uh, being on the program. Okay. And I want to ask you, too, where can people buy your book? Uh... <laughs> okay, Amazon, yes? No, Amazon presumably. I mean, that's where people tend to buy. I mean, if you've got a Christian bookstore, then bookstore, then I hope you'll be able to get it in your Christian bookstore. All right, and you have a website too. I think you have a you have a podcast too, right? Little yeah. plug. So, what's your what's your website? Uh, it's JohnGoldenGay.com. Okay, JohnGoldenGay.com. And so everyone knows that you're a big deal when it comes to scholarship and very humble person, but. You're also, you know, Dr. John Golden gave the uh, David Allen Hubbard Professor of Old Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. Great book. We appreciate once again you coming on. Okay. Thank you.